I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We have yet another exciting episode for you today, but one that I'm exceedingly excited with because I'm joined by two fabulous ladies. Not only do I have one of my favorite authors with me, we're joined by Marin as well, who is going to be introducing us. How are you, Marin? I'm all right, Mr. Bone. I'm not doing too bad. Yes, bit, 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 bit of an exceptional event today. We are very privileged to have with us Claire Mully, who is an award-winning author and broadcaster. And her first book, The Woman Who Saved the Children, was about Eglantine Jebb, who personally wasn't fond of children, but she established Save the Children in response to the First World War. I think that's right, isn't it, Claire? It is. And I think, I think I'm also right in saying that won the Daily Mail Biographers Club prize did which is no mean feat is it and then and then the um let, let's go up with some accolades and warm you up because the spy who loved led to you being decorated with poland's national honor the benny marito yes very good wear that on my pajamas all the time <laughs> and haven't taken it off and then um your latest tome the woman who flew for hitler i think has been long listed for the historic writers association non-fiction crown yeah sadly didn't win it but it was listed there so i was very pleased yeah yeah and that, that's who we're going to be talking about today isn't it yeah it's about two absolutely extraordinary there were only two women who served as test pilots for the third reich and so my book is about the two of them it's kind of a dual biography because they're fantastic foils for each other very different women and actually ended their lives on opposite sides of the war but i think today we're focusing on just one of them aren't we yes we're going to look at melita now have, her name is fabulous for a start melita schenk grafin von stauffenberg is that right yeah melita or litter melita Okay, so start at the beginning. Tell us where Melita was born. Uh, so she was born in 1903 in Krotoszyn, which was a German province of what was then Posen. It's now part of Poland. So it was on that disputed territory in the sort of border area between Poland and uh, Germany, which, of course, sort of was important and significant in her in her growing up with the First and Second World War and the borders changing around her. Okay. And and what sort of family was she born in? I mean, she wasn't born to be a pilot. What sort of family was she born into? Well, her, her mum was a Protestant, came from quite an arty family. Her father was a, a civil engineer. He was kind of like a Prussian official. He was, you know, sort of typical national conservative of that Wilhelmina era. He had a, a very fine moustache that he would wax into points. You can just see the sort of photograph, a Victoriana photograph of him. Um, and they were quite a big family, five siblings. Um, she was very close to them. And they just had this very carefree middle class life until the First World War interrupted it, really. Um, her father served, her mother and her elder sister served as nurses. And she got a, a real strong sense of duty and honour from that. And, and you mentioned that was it her mother was Protestant? Um, was her father Protestant as well? Her father was. Um, but I mean, slight spoiler here. Uh, he, her father came from this family from Odessa and they were, you know, a furrier family and then they moved into clothing. 
and uh, and he had Jewish grandparents, Jewish parents, but his father actually converted to Protestantism and he uh, went actually to Lutherism. Um, and from a teenager, he considered himself to be a Protestant. He had converted and he, he didn't ever sort of talk about his Jewish roots. He knew that there was obviously some sort of resident anti-Semitism and he decided not to make that part of his life. And he, in fact, Melitta and her siblings only really found out that they had this Jewish heritage in 1935 when the Nuremberg laws came and the Nazis made it suddenly much more significant. Um, So she grew up as a Protestant, but she did have this Jewish heritage through her father's line, then not through her mother's line. So that's going to come back into the story in a little while. But we're going to get on to the exciting bit for me because we're going to talk about flying. After the war, the Versailles Treaty meant that powered flight was out of the reach of many. But Melissa, like many others, went gliding. How did how did she learn to fly, Claire? How did that come into her life? Well, she was always, you know, absolutely fascinated by flight. Her her mother's brother, her uncle Ernst Eberstein, had flown. He was actually an ace in the First World War, and he was very good friends with someone called Ernst Udet, who you might have heard of, um, and. So I think during the war and just after the war, um, he, her uncle survived and he would entertain all the children with stories of his daring do. He was known as the hero of uh, one of the big engagements. And she had this real sense of honour in the skies, but also the power and the freedom, all those things, you know, modernity that we associate, those values we associate with flight. She was really drawn by that. Um, but she was also, you know, quite into the technicalities of it all. She had that very inquiring mind. So... When, after, as you mentioned, the Treaty of Versailles really stopped motorised flight, uh, it was banned under the terms of that treaty. And, uh, of course, it wasn't the Luftwaffe then, but the German Imperial Air Force was broken up and their aircraft were destroyed, as in literally, you know, sawn into pieces. And this was, you know, for an aviation family, uh, very distressing, very sort of smack in the face. Um, So what rose from that was non-motorised flight gliding. And this became the sort of aspirational sport for German youth and young people who wanted to um, sort of compete for their country on the international stage again again, and try and bring a sort of sense of respect and honour back to Germany. They did this through gliding and Melitta became quite fixated with gliding as well. She used to watch when she went to boarding school in Hirschberg, she um, would watch all these young boys going to their gliding classes and, and loads of school children would go down. You've got the odd photograph of little girls in their, you know, black stockings and white dresses going down in two straight lines, basically, to watch the, the gliders. Um, but Melissa was the only one who got stuck in. So when there was a, uh, you know, when the, the gliders had gone down the slope, she'd help pull them back up again so someone else could have a go. And if one went down with a hard landing, she'd sort of make a few suggestions of how it could be improved and she'd try and help fix them. And eventually... In 1920, when she was 17 years old, she was rewarded with the opportunity to have a go in one of these very precarious contraptions. You know, they're all made of um, canvas and bamboo and uh, little bits of wood. So pretty dangerous kit. Um, But she was desperate to have a go. And I think they just thought that she would slip down the grassy slope in it a bit like a sledge or something like that. But she'd been watching pretty carefully. So although she'd had no actual training herself, she knew what to do. So as it's powered down the slope with these two lines of young men in their plus fours and knitted jerseys, um, she knew at the right moment when to pull back on the stick and lift the nose of the glider. And up she went. And uh, and she knew when to, you know, pull the um, 
uh, pull the trigger that released the cord that went spiraling away. And she she went up into the air. And she said after that, she said, right from the start, flying exerted an irresistible magic on me. I was dominated all along by the longing for freedom. So it really gets into her her system. Um, and that was all in 1920. So pretty early on, she must have been one of the first women to, to have a flight in a glider like that. I find that sort of period of the beauty of flight, that sort of rush that she got just from from gliding. And, and she wasn't alone in that as well. There was there was this whole group of female aviators that, that came along with her. A couple of them were rather, rather well known. Extremely great. I mean, say, I mean, it was very sort of it was the glamorous age of flight, really, wasn't it? So then she went on and those gliders got slightly more, you know, developed. And then again, they put engines in them and, uh, and she was part of that set. You know, I mean, flying was very much seen as a male thing internationally. And um, um, it's no more so than in, in Germany, of course. But it, it, there were these pioneer women who were, you know, became huge celebrities like Amelia Earhart, you know, and uh, Amelia Earhart ended up having her own fashion line. And I think on Avion was the perfume of choice around this time. It was very much seen as a fashionable, dynamic thing. And uh, yeah, there were a number of German pilots that um, Melissa was good friends with, like Marta von Erzdorf, first woman to fly an airliner, um, who was an international, you know, long distance flight records holder um of course she came to a very tragic tragic end she was she was forced to land she was en route trying to fly to cape town and she had to stop in aleppo in syria and uh, they found in her plane a, a model machine gun and some marketing papers on machine guns and other weaponry and it seems that she must have been ferrying arms to supplement her income or something like that and uh, and when she landed she knew these would be found when the plane was checked and so she went into a she asked for a quiet room to recover and she went in and and unfortunately she shot herself killed herself she couldn't cope with the shame of that I mean I mean incredible intense pressure on these people and no support systems and she was doing something pretty serious there against the of course that would have been against the terms of the Treaty of Versailles to be moving information on arms um other women like Ellie Beinhorn, absolutely amazing as well. I was very lucky because I interviewed her son when I was doing the research for this book. And um, because, you know, she knew Melita quite well. But her own story is amazing as well. You know, she was the only she was the second person after Amelia Earhart to fly from Europe to Australia in a little clem. I was just going to say, this is an interesting time. You mentioned Europe and, and certainly 20s, late 20s, early 30s. I'm getting a sense of of family, of if not restoration, recuperation, and of things being really quite focused on getting back to life after the First World War. Yes. But mid, well, early to mid-1930s, we start to see the Germans, um, we start to see moves afoot. What was the effect on, on Melita and her family of, of political change? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it had a deep impact, of course. Um, so... And as particularly, I think, because the Nazis were deliberately aligning themselves with flight as well. So there was sort of like a connection in the air as well. Um, in fact, Hitler took his first flight the same year as Melissa, but he, he wasn't in a little fragile glider. Obviously, he was on a, a motorised flight from Munich to, to, yeah. to take part in the cat putsch, which didn't work. Um, and he, he actually was apparently very sick out the window and hated it. They went through storms and things. He had a very terrible journey, but he recognised the potential for flight with that journey. And, you know, not just for sports, but for politics as well. Um, so he very deliberately was linking the the Nazi party to those, you know, to those big symbols of modernity, pioneering force and all those those things. 
So Melissa was very interested in what was happening. But, you know, I think other people like Hannah Reich, who we didn't talk about, was another female pilot at the time, who's the second pilot in my book, um, the only other test pilot for the regime. You know, she really welcomed the rise of the Nazi party. And she saw, you know, she focused on all her writing, talking about the parades, the brass bands, the bunting in the streets, you know, Hitler's really taking the country back, growing sense of patriotism. But for Melissa, she picks up on very different cues. So she sees discrimination and, and violence on the streets with the brown shirts. And, um, and she sees, you know, not just communists being rounded up and, and disappearing, but also social democrats and some early church leaders. Um, and of course, when the Nuremberg laws come in and she realises the significance of her own Jewish heritage, um, really, she knows that this is quite a frightening regime from quite early on. She is never a Nazi. It's the thing that sort of stands out so beautifully in your book is is that difference between these two women with the same passion, but very very different out, outlooks. And it, it it's I, I I find Hannah fascinating, but not as fascinating as, as Melissa because yeah of the situation she found herself in. But yet she had this very technical mind, didn't she? She whereas Hannah stayed very much as a test pilot. Melissa was an an, an engineer yeah. more more so than a test pilot, wasn't she? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, they had a lot in common. So they were both, they were both great patriots. They were both absolutely brilliant natural pilots. I mean, otherwise the Nazis wouldn't have let them anywhere near their very expensive equipment. Um, but apart from that, they were sort of diametrically opposite. In fact, they were buzzing around my brain, sort of in opposite directions the whole time, like DNA swirling around out there or something. But um, so, yeah, Hannah was a brilliant glider pilot. Um, she was brilliant whatever she flew. She was actually the first woman in the world to fly a helicopter and ended up test flying the, the comet, the Messerschmitt, you know, the rocket pad comet, uh, the Messerschmitt 163. And in fact, she ended up testing, a, it's basically a prototype cruise missile, isn't it? The, um, the V1. Absolutely extraordinary. But Melita was uh, much more than that. She had a much deeper understanding of it. She had studied uh, one of the, you know, few women at that time to study engineering at, um, at university. She went to the Technical University of Munich, um, just as Hitler, of course, was parading around Munich. So it was very much in her face, in her consciousness. And um, and then she didn't, if there were other women studying engineering, they were sort of doing prototype Mullinex makers or things for the kitchen, you know, but she was doing aeronautical dynamics. Um, so she was very highly trained and she was working in the development of aerodynamics and uh, various different components of the, um, well, what became the early fighter planes, the Junkers. I, I can already see a, a, a really strong connection here. You've mentioned, um, I was going to say, joyriding, not joyriding, but testing. She actually did joyriding as well. She she fast cars. She did the lot. So, so she she's really quickly secured her place in terms of value for for the right. I mean, that must have impacted their family as well. It wasn't that easy. I mean, you know, she. I mean, she well, I don't know, in 1928, quite early on, so when she first uh, she graduated and got her first job at the German Research Institute of Aviation. Um, and she's looking into all these areas of aerodynamics and a new technology of jet propulsion very early on, some of that rocket technology and so on. Um, but in 1936, she's dismissed. And it's quite difficult to work out why, because they praise her massively for all her work, her attendance, her innovations, the engineering skills that she has but they have to let her go. And it seems likely it's because it came out that she wasn't pure Aryan at that point. So, I mean, she, she loses her job and so on. 
but nobody can replace her. Nobody can do the work. She's been doing this very advanced work with, you know, various forms of flaps and air screws and propellers and so on. And there isn't anyone that can really replace her. So um, she actually works for a civil aviation company, Ascania Works, it was called. But um, she starts developing uh, autopilot work, and that is really useful for the war so she's brought back in she's sort of seconded as a civilian back in so yes it does secure her not just work it actually becomes I mean she becomes very aware of her value to the regime and she uses that to the full she really exploits it and if anyone listening has ever seen the footages of the JU87 Stukas doing their dives and pulling out the pullout system was Melissa it's amazing isn't it I mean I know that uh, Ernst Dudek wanted to have a go at that I mean they go down a it's 80 degrees. It looks vertical pretty much when you watch them. You know, when, as a, at the start of that dive, they might be going at 350 miles an hour. It's absolutely extraordinary. And Udet wanted to have a go. So he he climbed in. He did a perfect, you know, he was a wonderful pilot, Udet, all those stunt work he did between the wars. And he climbed in. He did a very good test dive, nose dive, as they called them. But afterwards, he just didn't get out of the cockpit. So the ground crew came running up and his legs were shaking so much he couldn't support himself. It was terrifying. And I know that if a male test pilot in the morning tested a a Stuka dive bomber and then Melita might go away and, you know, fiddle around with it a bit, make a few adjustments. If the same pilot went back and tested it again in the afternoon, which is, you know, the preferred thing, so you get the the continuity as much as possible. um, It wasn't just considered courageous. That was seen as heroic, you know, twice in a day. But Melita would do her own test dives as well. She would do up to 15 in a day. She did over 2,000 nosedive test flights in prototypes during the war when nobody came anywhere near her. And the Nazis, of course, thinking, how can it be that a woman can do this mad work better than any of the men? They, they couldn't understand it. And they wanted to test her blood to see. They thought, you know, they're Nazis. They thought of a biological. It must be a reason. Um, perhaps her white and red cells in her blood had a different ratio or something like this. You know, it's ludicrous. Of course, there was a reason. And that was because she knew she had to make herself uniquely valuable so that she would be offered this very important, equal to Aryan status, horrendous terminology. And she'd been designated as what they called Mischling or sort of half mixed blooded. And when they finally offered her that status because they needed her, she was unique in what she could do. And um, she actually refused it unless that status was given to her entire family. So she's, she's working for the regime, trying to save her family. I find that bit about Udet fascinating because he was responsible for this sort of weird focus on dive bombers that the nazis had and that forced the luftwaffe to make even their big twin engine aircraft dive bombers um that milch then took took on and here's a guy who did one and didn't like it <laughs> it's, it's just mad uh, I've, I've got a quick question we mentioned that um she's she's now secured some kind of um preferred status for her family as well which, which is genius um it, it seems logical when we think about it now but what else was her family doing? Were they also employed in, in a similar vein? No, not at all. They're all doing completely different stuff. I mean, so she had four siblings and as early as possible, they all got out of Germany. They weren't, you know, so one went to do some research in um, Spain on uh, it was dietary work. Uh, another one was a sort of a, spe- a specialist expert on agriculture and sort of trying to create a good harvest and crop, which obviously became very important with the idea of Liebenstrom. And um, he was sent up to sort of later on, you know, sent up to former Soviet territories after June 41 to sort of see what could be done there. So they're all trying to make themselves valuable but they were all 
protected by Melita. And extraordinarily, her entire family survived the war purely wow. her, really. And is she still single at this point, or is she married? Uh, she married in 37, so... Okay, and was it, was it um, somebody that she knew through work she married? I'm curious, because she sounds so headstrong, she sounds so independent. You've got to read the book, okay. Marion, you've got to read the book. <laughs> I read the book, sorry, excuse me. She, she is headstrong, that's absolutely fantastic. She does marry, and I think it is partly because it's useful for both parties in this marriage. So she married wonderful poet really historian poet academic uh, called Alexander and he came from a very old German family one of the oldest and most distinguished Catholic German families so it gave her that little bit more credibility you know to take that name as a well-known name and he also I mean he had really sort of reached the the glass ceiling in the academic world because he wasn't married and all good German men were meant to be married so they kind of came to this arrangement I, th- I believe they really loved each other as well. But um, I know that she loved some other young men and had a wonderful affair with um, a lovely one, one arm or one, one leg. I can't remember now. Gosh, a young pilot that went into the test programme and worked under her, trained under her. But I, th- I think she did love Alexander very much. But I think it was useful for both of them, that marriage. I was just going to say, let, let's spend a minute and, and talk about that famous old catholic german family the von stauffenbergs because you have some wonderful pictures in your book of um, alexander and and lita but then also his brother klaus who we know very well uh, but also his wife nina and their kids there's just some lovely family portraits and you you bring together this this beautiful image of a family that we think we know through klaus and, and the july plot which we'll get to later but the von Stauffenbergs were very much a family and they, they do seem to have had a very close bond and, and welcomed Melita in. I mean, and still have a close bond. One of the wonderful things during my research is that I managed to get in touch with Bertolt von Stauffenberg, who was the eldest son of Klaus von Stauffenberg, um, most famously played by Tom Cruise, of course, in, the, in Valkyrie, the film about the 20th of July plot. Um, which is kind of central to my book as well, but from a very different angle. Anyhow, I managed to reach him and he said, you know, I'm sorry, I've I've given so many interviews about my famous dad and I honour him to this day, but I don't want to give another interview about him. And I was like, so it's it just, actually, I'd like to talk about your aunt. And he said, my aunt, no one's ever asked me about my aunt. I would love to talk about her. And, you know, sometimes you interview people and, and they, they kind of told the stories and the anecdotes become sort of well-polished. And he didn't have that. He said, well, it was bizarre. Actually. He said, well, do you know, I'm going away tomorrow, so I won't be able to help you all day after tomorrow's. But unless you can get to me, you know, in the next 24 hours, I, the only time I life, I put the phone down, went to Stansted and I got on a plane, <laughs> had breakfast with him the next morning. It was just fantastic in his schloss and silver service. It was amazing. And, uh, and it, it was wonderful because he hadn't discussed her and he loved his aunt. He remembered her, you know, Melissa would drive a little Topolino, an open topped little car down these hairy mountain tracks. And she'd perch him, not even on the back seat, but on the back, on the, the boot at the back. And he'd just have to hold on as she went really fast down the mountain road. She loved speed and adventure and adrenaline, you know. So, um, but he had a lot of memories about her and her, her views on Hannah and her views on the regime absolutely fascinating and, and never really tapped into before oh it was wonderful though as well at the end he said he said I've only got sort of an hour or so but after about six hours we said goodbye and he, he clicked his heels and kissed my hand it was very sort of Prussian you know he still had that from the family 
And then I was feeling all sort of a little flushed and just as just the most incredible interview. And then this wonderful flourish at an end. And he said, oh, you know, you should be careful shaking hands like that. And I just thought, oh, you know why? This is pre-COVID, of course. <laughs> I, I don't know why. And he said, you know, you're just two handshakes away from Hitler because he had held his father's hand and Klaus had shaken Hitler's hand not long, you know, in the days before he tried to kill him. And it did give you pause for thought because you can get that real rush of adrenaline when you're thinking about this incredible research and these stories haven't been told. And, and it just feels thrilling and wonderful. And then you've got to realise the whole time when you write a book like this, the context of it. Yes, she saved her family, but what was going on for everyone else? Yes, this happened, but isn't her work supporting the Nazi regime? You know, it's not clear cut. It's a very grey and fascinating area. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think that's insightful. I think that's something we, we often forget when whatever we're reading about, specifically perhaps, and perhaps it's because um, there, there's discomfort. The Second World War is still so close. We tend to pocket things. We tend to think about binary discussions. The Germans did this. The French did that. The Italians did this. But, but it's not. It's so much more complex than that. And the stories interact and families and individuals. They aren't just doing one thing and it's documented in the archive. There's a whole life story to explore with each and every person we talk about. You know, I interviewed veterans on both sides of the war, you know, Luftwaffe pilots, RAF, our greatest test pilot, Winkle Brown, all sorts in there. But in Germany, I was interviewing some of the families and I'd say, do you have a photograph of your father or whatever? And they'd say, oh, yeah. And they'd show me their father wearing the Iron Cross with the Nazi thing and doing the Nazi insignia salute. And that's the only photograph that they have of their father. So they've kept it, you know, and of course, this history is so much more involved there. And when people talk to me about, you know, the British war crimes, which, you know, the aerial bombing, the strategic bombing campaign. And, and you know, it's it's very interesting. Where, where was Alexander posted to? Because Klaus very famously was in North Africa. Where did Alexander go? Because his his military career was quite different to that of his brother's. Klaus was, Klaus was um, I believe, in the invasion of Poland as well early on. He went all over the place, not just North Africa. Um, yeah, Alexander got various different postings as well. He spent a lot of time being trained. Milita actually managed to go and visit him at um, training in, I think it was Czechoslovakia she visited him. He accidentally got her rooms in what turned out to be a brothel. But uh, anyhow. As you do. <laughs> it was all quite interesting. Um, uh, their reports on that are very interesting and a friend of theirs. So that's, that's all in the book. But he ended up, he actually went out to the Eastern Front uh, and he was very badly injured there uh, with shrapnel lodged in him and they brought him back and he had quite a period of being on uh, convalescence leave and survived that. 
in Berlin. Uh, yes, in Berlin. So they they lived together during that time. She was sort of semi-caring for him. I mean, this amazing thing, she would go and do this incredible work, you know, her drawing board all, all evening and test flying dive bombers during the day. And then she'd go home, put her pinny on, take dictation for a few poems or an article that Alexander wanted to write and cook him dinner. It's just she was being the housewife as well, the housefrau on top of everything else. And her salary was, you know, 10 times his. By the end of the war, she had a whole um, research institute under her responsibility. You know, she reported directly to Goering. Um, amazing stuff. Anyhow, after he recovered from that, she managed to pull a few strings and he got posted out to Greece, which is where he was in 44, um, where he was there, you know, with the army, but also in his role as a historian. Claire, you give the impression that she's a polymath. Would you say that, that her, her interests as much as her capabilities extended that far? Well, I don't, I'm, I don't, she was very talented. I mean, she, the engineering skills are second to none, her physical endurance. And I mean, she'd always been a brilliant skier, diver, hiker, all of that. And um, so she's got all that. But she mainly relaxed by sculpting. She was a very good sculptor as well. My husband's a professional sculptor. And, uh, we, we, you know, he was quite impressed by some of her pieces. So, yeah. Your two women in The Woman Who Flew for Hitler, um, Hannah and Melissa, I wouldn't say covet, but they both desire the Iron Cross. And it's something that's very, very recognisable to everybody. But I suppose a good question to start with is, what is it? What is it awarded for? And I guess, what did it mean when Melissa was awarded it? Uh, well, it's a military decoration, not a civilian decoration, although Hannah and Melita were both awarded it. And of course, they weren't in the military. They were su- su- civilians seconded to the military. And um, so they are very interesting there. I mean, it's a very old honour. At first, it was a Prussian honour and then it was given in for the German Empire, First World War. Her own father got the Iron Cross. Hitler, of course, got the Iron Cross one and two. Um, well, you got the second class and then you got the first class um, for his work in the First World War. Um, so, yes, both Hannah and Melitta got the Iron Cross, were awarded the Iron Cross. Hannah was the first woman in the Second World War to be awarded the Iron Cross. She got the second class first. And um, that was for her work pretty early on. She was testing this. You know, Britain's main defence was the barrage balloons um, from the bombers because they're, they're, you know, they don't just float around. They're tethered on these quite, actually quite slender, but very strong steel cables. And uh, if you're going fast, especially at night and you don't see them, you fly into that. It's got the capacity to saw the wing off a plane um, and send you spiralling down. So the Germans had developed something called a wing blade, which was sort of like, you know, a knife basically stuck on a fender in front of the wings and avoiding the propeller. And she was testing that. I think quite early on before they realised her sort of celebrity value to the regime. And she tested that. And I mean, incredibly dangerous. And the cable, you know, it cut it. She was jolted. She felt the plane jolt and the the cable swung and it was sliced. But unfortunately, the end of the cable swung into the propeller, smashing it and sending shards of that through the cockpit. She just about got away with her life. Anyhow, so she got the Iron Cross second for that and then later got the Iron Cross first class as well. And Melitta was the second woman to get the Iron Cross during the Second World War, which she got for her work with dive bombers. I mean, interestingly, Hannah was given it directly, personally, by Hitler, but Hitler wouldn't meet Melitta. So, but Goering did. And there is a photograph of Goering shaking her hand, giving her the Iron Cross of second class. And she wrote, she wrote a little diary piece about it, because one of the wonderful things is I found her diaries, uh, handwritten 1943-44, never really looked at for, because they're not in a military archive. And sent back to the family, you know, basically marked as domestic or whatever. So not really used. Anyhow, and in this diary, she talks about 
Goering and apparently they had, you know, fish pancakes and a nice light wine. And it is fascinating. But the crosses meant very different things to these women. So for Hannah, one of my favourite sets of photographs in the book is there. I've got their official photographs to mark receiving the Iron Cross, uh, which was a portrait shot done at, you know, Hitler had his favourite photographer. And so down, down there. And Hannah is staring into the camera with this Cheshire cat grin and, you know, the Iron Cross proudly on display and, and absolutely beaming. Oh, there it is. There's Hannah's at the top and Melita's at the bottom. What a contrast. So it's one of the few Iron Cross portraits where she's not actually looking at the camera. She's not smiling. In fact, it looks like she's trying to fight a smile to, you know. And where is her Iron Cross? There's no medal in that photograph. That's the only one I've seen like that. But it is actually there. I don't know. Can you spot it, Matt? There's a little bow on her lapel. And it's made from the ribbon of the Iron Cross, which Alexander took to get enamelled at the jewellers for her. So it's got no it's got no swastika in it. There's no Nazi symbol in there. So, I mean, I think I mean, looking back, it's very clear what these pictures are telling us at the time. It's surprising they couldn't read that better then. They're, they're absolutely remarkable because the the one of Hannah is very well known. I think it was in every documentary she she appeared in, wasn't it? And but the the Melita ones, you you just see the little black and red ribbon on on her button and and that little enameled one as well. It's it's fascinating. And every once in a while, I think you come across a a new photo of 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 her, and you just see that little ribbon on on her on her jacket, and that's it. You. I don't think there is one of her actually wearing wearing the cross itself. No, I didn't find one. No, I mean, obviously it's important to her because it's another sort of statement of acceptance by the regime. It's useful in that regard. But there, There's more of a sense of humility about it, though, whereas Hannah's is about there, there's definitely an effusive sense of achievement, yeah. but there's, there's more of a humility of Melita. But of course, Melita doesn't really want to be aiding the Nazis. I mean, the irony is that she was probably more useful to the Nazis than Hannah. I mean, they were both very useful, but Melissa's work is absolutely extraordinary. So did she do anything? Um, I mean, we hear a lot about the, um, I was going to say a lot about um, heavy water sabotage, quite an acquired thought. Where I'm going with that is, is, did she actually do anything antagonistic to try and mitigate what was going on? Well, yes, she was sort of quite central to the most famous assassination plot on Hitler, attempt on his life. But she's, she doesn't really, appear, I mean, it's one of the most written about episodes of the Second World War, isn't it? But she very rarely appears in any of the accounts of it. So it was absolutely remarkable to uncover that story. I mean, I couldn't believe I was writing this, but there were only two women that served as test pilots for the Third Reich. Yeah. One of them, Hannah, was a fanatical Nazi. Melita was part Jewish or she had Jewish heritage. One of them, Hannah, tried to save Hitler's life at the end of the war in the bunker. Melita, central to the most famous attempt on his life. I mean, you couldn't get more opposites. They seem to, to sort of, in, in the story of just two women, you encompass so many facets of the war and German attitudes and what could and could not be done. Melissa's position again that actually helps the planning of that plot isn't because she's she was allowed to sail wasn't she which means it's very hard to listen in on someone on a boat that's exactly right pilots had various privileges like you know pilot's chocolate I don't know if we're going to talk about that we'll come back to the chocolate okay um and and various other privileges and one of them was that Melissa was allowed to sail a yacht on the Vonsey which is the big lake in Berlin of course and exactly as Matt said if you're if you're on a boat in the middle of a lake you can't really be overheard so you will see I mean in her diaries which are sort of 
semi-coded, lots of initials rather than names and so on. She was being cautious in writing them. Probably not cautious enough, but um, they didn't actually mm. cause anyone harm. But you can see that she is throughout... Uh, the spring of 44 and the summer she's inviting all these people that we worked at so it's Klaus, Bertold, um, Alexander, her husband's twin, uh, all these people that are central to the plot are being invited to go swimming at the Vonsey and sailing on the Vonsey and this is what they're doing they're discussing they're making some of the arrangements but then as we move towards June and July Increasingly, she's actually visiting Klaus's Tristanstrasse flat, which was basically Conspiracy HQ. Um, she's there two days before the bomb plot. I mean, there's no way she's just going for a chat. At this point, everyone that's going there is involved in planning for that plot. And she was as well. She later, she I didn't get to interview her, sadly. She had died before then. But um, there's a couple of recorded interviews uh, with people who did know her, um, as well as my own research. Um, in one of these recorded interviews, a gentleman that's no longer with us, um, he talks about how Melita had told him that Klaus and she had planned for her to fly him to the wolf's lair to put the bomb down. She was the pilot of oh, the plot. No. But in fact, when it came to it, the planes, the aircraft that she had earmarked to take in that day were taken out by someone else off the books. She couldn't get access to them. They must have known maybe a couple of days before. And so he was flown in by Luftwaffe Adjutant, which, you know, they had other plans. But she was, you know, central to the initial concept of how that was going to work. Incredible life. Yes. I don't think we need to go into the plot, but what happened after it fell apart because you know Klaus famously executed the following morning but there's there's this quite large family there and then you have Melissa in quite a powerful position as well who is sort of implicated by association more than anything else they they rounded up I mean all of the von Stauffenberg family were rounded up and put in prison um, and Melita was, I mean, she was actually due. She was about to get her Iron Cross first class. She'd been proposed and nominated successfully for her first class Iron Cross. But um, instead of getting that, she was sent to prison. And that was that for the honours, obviously. Um, and so she, while she was in prison, she actually heard that Bertolt von Stauffenberg had been taken out and hanged in the most grotesque manner. Um, she heard of the deaths of many of the other plotters while she was in there. And just appallingly bizarrely they allowed her to keep her diary with her so she continued to write in it uh, which is a fascinating document and you know I, well I thought that would be the end of it they rounded up about 2,000 people they weren't all Stavenbergs obviously but they just sort of took this as a good opportunity to get rid of all sorts of people that they could you know that were incriminated um, or they, they just thought were against the Nazi regime and this was just a good moment to get rid of a load of people and though you know many of them were executed and I I had believed that that was what happened to Melita, but dot, 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 um, actually she went on and her life didn't end there. She managed to talk her way out. I, I don't really want to go on to what she did next, but she's given this incredible accolade. She did this extraordinary second part of her, her wartime life then. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. We're going to save that. If you want to find out what happens, you'll have to go buy Claire's book. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, 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 my, one of my favorite bits, and we've talked about this in the past is Melissa had access to Luftwaffe rations, of which one of them was chocolate, which was a very rare commodity as well, which she would give to her nieces and nephews. As a parent, I would hate this because what was in the chocolate? Oh, it's so lovely. I went to interview on a, on a separate trip. I went to interview some of Melissa's side of the family. So these are the children of her brothers and sisters, her nephews and nieces. And uh, one of them, wonderful woman, 
I'd interviewed her and she remembered they lived quite near one of the airfields at Reckling where Melita did some of her test work. And whenever Melita was there, she'd go and see the family and, and she would take them her chocolate rations because the kids obviously had no sweets at this time. And so they were absolutely thrilled by this. The woman I was interviewing was the elder of two. And she said that she would take the lion's share of it and give her little brother, you know, a few chunks of it. Um, but she loved it. She said she was bouncing off the walls for days. And it's not much of a surprise because this chocolate was called it was called Cola because it was chocolate caffeine and coca-cola now all designed to keep those pilots going in the sky um, and the pilots knew that what they didn't know was also rammed full of pervitin so uh, you know it was an upper drug and just she would have been bouncing off the walls so yeah, yeah literally clawing you off off the ceiling <laughs> i would have thought um like i said we're gonna we're gonna leave the the rather remarkable i don't want to say return to form but that final chapter in in, in melissa's story for those to read oh, the book but the book's been out for a few years how, how have people been reacting to it because it's it everyone i've spoken to who's read it has loved it and i just wanted to see see how how, how it's been for you since its publication well you know i'm i am very proud of it um i mean it's it's done well i'm very pleased it was um runner-up for that prize which was nice um it had some fantastic reviews and it's continuing to sell pretty well so i'm pleased but, um, you know, I would love someone to option this. I, I just think maybe not so much film or maybe I'd be quite happy, but I can just see a TV series. There are so many episodes in here that are so dramatic. And the twinning of these two women, you know, one Aryan fair, one not. And, and of course, they knew each other. They're the only two women often working in these airfields with a line of men in their uniforms. And the only two women uh, that were at the Berlin Aero Club under their in their own right, not just as a wife or secretary sort of thing. Um, and they knew each other so well, but all the stories are they refused to even have a cup of tea with each other. And there was one incredible moment where um, Hannah actually accused Melita of making a sexual pass at her. Just extraordinary. I mean, that's the last thing Melita would have done. Even I mean, she had more than one man anyhow. Um, but even if she was bi... The, she was far too clever to go for Hannah, who she had no respect for, um, thought was quite foolish and knew would have shocked her anyhow because she was a complete Nazi. You know, there's no way that Melita would have done that. Um, but Hannah, on the other hand, you know, maybe she admired Melita a little more than she liked to say. Maybe it's the who knows. But, you know, these the fascinating psychology of the relationship between these women, I think could, it could just be really interesting on on screen if anyone's doing that but also i just think it tells it gives us a different way into the war doesn't it it's a it's a very different story that you don't normally hear and i think it's it humanizes it but that you know the horror the weight is still there but also it has this very personal human doorway in and i think you know a lot of people said to me after the book came out well, some people, not many, some people said, isn't it good? You've written the other side. You've written about the good Nazis. And, you know, I haven't done that because there aren't good Nazis. You can't put those words together. And, and somebody said to me, isn't it? I love books about difficult women. And I, you know, I hate all this sort of cliche, dumbing it down. You know, what I tried to do was write about two real women who made very different decisions. They're both very brave, but only one of them had real moral courage. And I think they you know, they clearly responded in very different ways um, to, to life under the perverting conditions of war and dictatorship. But one of them decided to do much to do much more and, and put her life on the line for her principles and chose, you know, not everyone was in a position to do that. But this is sort of asked some of those questions, what could be done? And this is the story of one of those very courageous women. And I think if it, if it just tells one thing in a very simple way, perhaps it's the absolute hypocrisy of a regime that 
thought there was there was only one real place for women, you know, Kirsha, Kuka, Kinder, and there was no place for Jews at all, of course, in the Third Reich. And yet when they needed them, they were prepared to give their highest honours to two women in the very, you know, supposedly masculine field of flight, one of whom the Nazis themselves defined as being Jewish. Complete and utter hypocrisy. Absolutely. It continues to fascinate me that, that I mean, this, I mean, when, when did this come out? Last year, your book? Was it last year? No, a couple of years, a couple a couple years, years ago. ago. But it continues to fascinate me that stories that are this complex and this wonderful are still surfacing. And thank goodness they are, because the, the idea of not knowing this story, I mean, the, her work was important, but her role was important as well in teaching us today that there is more to life than the black and white of war. I think, I think that grey area where the nuance is, the aching nuance, that's where the most important or, well, the most interesting stories are. So, yeah, I was very, I couldn't believe it when I was researching it, the, the stuff that I found that hadn't been looked at. But I think there is this, you know, still quite, quite a rich seam of untold women's stories as well. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's very true. I think there are a lot of untold stories that hopefully will come to light. This has been a lot of fun. Claire, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, do you want to give the book a shout out once again? What's it called? It's called The Women Who Flew for Hitler. And um, and I think, yeah, I don't think you said, did you, that you're doing this pod to mark the 76th anniversary of Melita's death so that's that's the hook for us bringing it out today but it's called the women who flew for Hitler yes I totally forgot that and that was the first thing I said in my text wasn't it <laughs> uh yes seven, 76 years people so please pick up this book and and, and read it in, in her honor because she is a remarkable woman I think you'll find Hannah equally interesting but in very different ways and I think we should probably do do a chat about her at some point as well Claire because her story is remarkable doesn't really cover it it's amazing thank you so much for joining us Marin. thank you for being with me as well and we shall be back with more exciting stories with you tomorrow thank you thank you very much cheers i'd like to thank claire mully for joining us once again on history hack if you've not caught up with episode 30 you can go back to hear claire talking about her amazing book about christina skabek the spy who loved the spy who loved and the Women Who Flew for Hitler are both available on our very own bookshop. If you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, you'll be able to find Claire's books and all the books of our latest guests as well. 10% of every purchase through our bookshop goes to supporting the podcast. So not only do you support our amazing guests, you support us as well. And we cannot thank you enough for that. And of course, we always have to end with the Patreon bit. In 2020, when the boss ladies, Alex and Alina, started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.